Open for business number 68, iDevices That Know You. Bandwidth for Open for Business is provided by Amazon S3 servers. Amazon S3 is storage over the internet. Find out more at aws.amazon.com. Budwitz & Meyerjack PC is a large Connecticut-based CPA firm with offices in Cheshire and Farmington, Connecticut. Large enough to handle engagements of enterprises with annual revenues in excess of $100 million, yet small enough to cater to smaller businesses and individual clients who expect personalized attention from partners and staff. Client service is the cornerstone of our practice. Our clients have a fixed fee for their audit and tax work. What this means to the client is we're approachable. Personal communication and client services make for strong relationships. Budwitz & Meyerjack, certified public accountants. This is Open for Business, the podcast that explores all things business, entrepreneurship, marketing, technology, customer service, and how to make a few honest dollars for yourself. Today, we are joined by the CEO and founder of iDevices, Chris Allen. iDevices started with uh, the invention of the iGrill, one of the first app-enabled devices to be featured at the Apple retail stores way back in 2010. This was the cutting, bleeding edge of the IoT era, the Internet of Things era. Today, Chris's company, iDevices, blends the art and science of app development and hardware infusion to create wondrous new products to make our lives more enjoyable. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so 37 years old, born and raised in West Hartford, Connecticut. Really was in the finance business for a long time. I was a stockbroker. Um, and in 2000 and early 2009, decided that uh, I was outside grilling and had an iPhone and used uh, an old Brookstone wireless thermometer and decided that I wanted that to connect to my iPhone instead of carrying around this separate device. I thought it'd be cool to invent it. Decided that I wasn't going to be one of those guys that saw it on the shelf a few years later and said, I had that idea and I didn't <laughs> do it because uh, we've all done that. So I went ahead and uh, Googled a bunch of different things, went out, got a patent, started in the, in the place of uh, Googling different companies to work with uh, to make this happen. And lo and behold, a year and a half later, uh, we had a product. Apple came in and supported us quite a bit. I actually got the Apple contact, uh, believe it or not, through a cold email. Uh, <laughs> it goes back to my stockbroker days when I cold called folks. I actually, Here you go. Dialing for dollars. Exactly. I, I uh, cold called uh, one of the top execs over at Apple uh, through an email that he left up on a, a seminar presentation that he was doing. And two hours later, they called up and said that they would support uh, us with some engineering support. Then lo and behold, in the summer after we had our first prototypes, they said they were going to launch it in store. So 2010, uh, November, this time that year, uh, we launched in Apple retail across the US. And it's kind of been the fairy tale since then. So it's not only a product, it's a physical product because you need the eye grill, which existed sort of in the past, like you said, with the Brookstones things and many, many others. Uh, we have one that, you know, we use during Thanksgiving where you plug it in and there's a very sturdy wire that comes out of the uh, out of the turkey and connects to a thermometer to tell you how hot that turkey is. But instead of that being on the grill where you have to be right next to it, this then sends, is it low power bluetooth or yeah so originally it was a uh, bluetooth classic which if you're a techie that was kind of what was uh what you were using to connect to your audio speakers and to your car and now it is bluetooth uh low energy or bluetooth smart they call it so okay. it's evolved over the last couple of years it's interesting they call it smart even though it's kind of less powered it's, yeah <laughs> that's a great little piece of marketing right there there you go so now you can go inside especially hey this is the time to to, to get one of these things when it's cold out and you still want to grill you can go inside Exactly. And just check out uh, how the meat is doing on the uh, on the grill. How are these uh, devices, iPhones, iPads, 
Uh, I don't know if you know the hue lights, yep, which are very cool. Um, all these things that you can connect uh, with via your devices. How are these changing how we interact with our environments? I mean, really, it's, it's amazing to watch the evolution because uh, having been one of the first, you know, we had to do a lot of education to the consumer. And over the last five years, four and a half years, the, the explosion of these devices has really allowed people to understand the market much better. Um, and what you're learning is people are learning a lot more about the environment around them, a lot more about their bodies. I think uh, the health and fitness was a big market. Yeah, Fitbit. Uh, I have a Jawbone up on right now. Um, Nike, Fuel, all these different health bands, sleep awareness. And that's kind of been the focus, really. That's where it exploded the most because I think everybody wants to be in shape and wants that uh, wants to lose that extra 20 pounds they got on their body. As We as Americans tend to carry a little bit more weight, I guess. It's insulation for the cold weather right now. Sure. That's really, the you know, all these devices have enabled people to understand their environment and their bodies, I think, much more clearly. And so we see the next evolution, which is what we're working on now in the home automation market, which, like you mentioned, the Philips Hue uh, lights, you know, those are light bulbs. There's a number of things with, uh, plugs and switches. There's a number of appliance makers that are coming out with things. Um, that's everything from even locking your door. Yep. I uh, mean, that's cool stuff. It is very cool. It's, um, I don't know. The adoption has been a little slower than maybe some companies would have liked because there wasn't a true architecture. And one of the reasons we didn't enter into that space is it was very fragmented and there was a lot of players from smart things to nest to, uh, Apple had some strategies and then Apple approached us in January of this year of joining their home kit movement, which is their kind of four way into the home automation space to provide some structure. And they called it a massive chaos and they wanted to provide structure to the chaos. So we'll be launching a product in Q4 that will be in the home automation space. And we've been working with Apple since January. We were one of eight companies in the world to work with them. So we were pretty excited about that. Here's the chaos is that you can have a device like the Hue Light, like the iGrill, door locks, the Nest, which is a product that is basically a thermostat, your garage doors, all of these different things. You know, whatever you think of in your home that you could automate, you would have to have all those different kind of apps. Wouldn't it be great to have just one app that could control all of those? You enter that app and then you choose what you want to control. Is that sort of like what Apple was telling you? They want one interface with all these different things? Yeah, very much. I mean, what they saw is a lot of people uh, developed what they called hubs small little devices that you'd have to put in your networking closet that were supposedly controlling all these devices. Um, and that created even more chaos. So you had the confusion of number of different manufacturers, you know, manufacturing products and them not playing nicely together or within one app together. And so what Apple's done is created the framework to allow all those devices to interconnect very, very seamlessly. Um, and also is the setup. A big turnoff if you've had any of these devices is getting them set up and running in your house. Uh, so it wasn't plug and play. It was plug, set up, IP addresses, Wi-Fi network uh, security. Troubleshoot, troubleshoot, yeah, exactly. troubleshoot. Um, yeah. And then finally get something up and running. Um, the singular app is actually what we're developing. Um, so we have a singular app called the iDevices Connected app that's uh, going to do exactly what you were saying where it's going to household all these products in a singular application and allow people that control rather than having to jump in and out of a number of different apps and utilize uh, each manufacturer's app, they'll be able to come to our application and use that one app to control all these various devices. There's a term, when, uh, it's not used so much anymore, but I think it's still appropriate, called the walled garden, which is the, if we talk about the Internet of Things, Apple was sort of putting up a walled garden of applications for your phone. 
I know that iGrill, you can get one on an Android side. So if you have a Samsung or HTC phone or Motorola phone, you can still use that. Is Apple bringing this outside of that walled garden or are they trying to still keep it uh, just in their, in their operating system? Apple is very focused on the user experience. So in order to keep it perfect in their mind, they always put up a, a wall. Walled garden is a good example. Um, MFI is what they call it. It's those little tags that you see on the outside of boxes that says made for iPhone, iPod, iPad. So the the, the new home automation market is going to be governed by that body uh, within Apple. And really what that, that body um, or that, that uh, part of Apple does is make sure that each product works perfectly with their iOS. Right. Um, they test it. They certify it. And once they certify it, um, then it's able to go to market. Um, so it's very controlled. Um Pros and cons. Pro is that the user experience is usually really good on those products and it gives the consumer a sense of, it gives them the warm and fuzzies when they buy something with that on there that it's going to work. Um, in addition, uh, it, it allows us as developers um, to develop something that we know is going to work on their devices. Um, so the big problem we have in the Android market, it's great open source market. It's, you know, kind of free willy, you know, just go and do whatever you want and have fun. Um, problem when you have a product in the marketplace is figuring out which products work with your product. So iGrill, everybody was dying for an iGrill app that worked on Android. Um, and it wasn't that we didn't want to support Android. It was the fact that we had to figure out what phones would work on Android with our Bluetooth smart iGrill. Um, and then we had to go out and develop a library of that, of library of Bluetooth configurations in order to work with each one of those phones. So launching something in the Android market is much harder than the the iPhone market or the Apple market. With Android, you have uh, really it's just a cluster, and and now and Google is very aware of this, and we've actually started working with them. But it's um it's very fragmented. They don't control the hardware experience, and the hardware side, you have to understand they they're diametrically opposed. Uh, the phone makers are focused on selling more phones, right? So they will specifically limit feature sets, even Bluetooth Smart within devices so that you have to go out and get the next phone in order to get that feature. Hmm. Um, versus, you know, as much as Apple wants to sell more phones, they're very software oriented in terms of selling iTunes and the apps and the, you know, the additional stuff that they generate their revenue through. Um, so the device is kind of the bait on the hook that gets you in. Right. And then uh, they, they make their revenues uh, both on the device, but really more on the software integration, iPhoto and everything else. I think once they get you, it's very hard to leave that environment. Um, on the Android side, we've had to go through, literally we have probably 50 phones in my office of all the different you know Android phones. And whether or not they're running the latest OS, whether or not they're allowing BLE, what, what the config on the BLE is, how mm -hmm. to set it up, how to keep the connection going in the background, obviously that's a big thing. I mean, when we first launched with Apple, uh, Bluetooth wasn't allowed to run in the background. So you go into it and uh, you're going to monitor your meat So and you lock your phone and we disconnected. So <laughs> your meat could burn and you would have never known. So we were instrumental in getting Apple to adopt backgrounding for Bluetooth and now Android is, as well. How does this talk of net neutrality play into this? Is there a possibility where you are going to uh, have an added expense if someone is accessing your applications, but they need to use the internet? Is that last mile discussion on net neutrality going to come with an extra cost? So every time you open up your 
your uh, garage door or unlock something or turn on the lights, there's a charge, probably nominal, but, you know, some kind of 50 cent charge to do that? The, you know, the market experimented with that. Uh, Kivo, which is a quick set um, with a Bluetooth lock, they charged for extra keys, you know, basically uh, allowing someone else into your house. That didn't go over so well. Um, and uh, I, I would say in our surveys, we have half a million users out there right now. And in our surveys of those folks, they, they have no desire to be charged. If they've bought a hardware device, there's a very little perception of value to um, be charged within the application for additional functionality. In general, I think the, the consumer feels that they should it should come with everything. Um, so we won't be charging. I know some people are still toying with the model of how they monetize this. And there are back-end monetizations that you can do um, more with strategic partnerships and strategic marketing. But um, we don't sell any of our information. So it's it, it really what the companies need to look at the value of the application and that that nominal cost that you have for uh, adding the network connectivity should be seen as a way to develop better products in the future through the analytics that you gather, you know, and that's really the education that we've been doing. So we've worked with Timex, we've worked with Kenmore, Hasbro, you know, um, Tory Birch, Kate Spade, you know, a number of different large companies. And I think what a lot of people are missing is it's cool to have something that's connected, um, and there's a fee for that. There's a cost that's associated with it. Even just having an app. I mean, an app cannot remain stagnant. An app has to constantly be developed. We have 12 app developers over there constantly just developing better and better uh, functionality within the application. What they're missing in a lot of cases, and they haven't 100% grasped, is you have the application, which is your storefront now in, in the f face of your uh, company. Um, so having that combined with the analytics that you can garner through that you can really allow yourself to understand how people use your product when they stop using it, warranty information, you know, customer service. There's a lot of ancillary benefits of having that device uh, in front of them with your brand on it. And so that evolution, I think, is just starting to come about. We've seen some huge companies like the likes of Honeywell, right? Honeywell came out with a Lyric in what's Lyric? Uh, Lyric is a thermostat, very much like Nest. Okay. Um, they touted that. Uh, you know, Nest came out with this round design and everybody thought, ooh, very pretty. And they said, we've been doing round since like 1956 or something like that. Okay. <laughs> they, they are the original thermostat. They're in the Smithsonian, that thermostat. <laughs> so, um, you know, they look at it and they say, okay, we're in this now. And these guys are the guys that can come in and they have billions of dollars, uh, you know, at their disposal. And they can really make a stamp in the marketplace and expand this market. I think over the last 12 months, you've seen them really step in and say, okay, we're going to go into this and go in hard. And a lot of these guys already have the backend infrastructure with cloud services and, and large networks built out because they're in the security business or they have other, other products that are connected. So it's just them understanding how to truly utilize that backend and monetize it through additional products that they can launch in, in the marketplace. We've talked a lot about Apple, the iOS, oh, or Google's uh, Android operating system. Windows Phone, BlackBerry, <laughs> Huawei, are these like such ancillary players that you don't care or... Are you developing for, I mean, you know, maybe Windows does something. I, it, I think Windows right now stands at 2 to 3% of the market for phones. Um, it's not cost effective for us to develop on that. I, I couldn't dedicate a, even one developer for 2% of the market. Um, so, um, and BlackBerry, 
I don't think they're around really. I haven't seen too many of those sales going on. Um, but I think Microsoft, I know Microsoft in conversations with a couple other folks is looking more at the back end, providing more of the back end server side and the networking connectivity side. So they may have a play there, but I think in terms of on the devices, it's going to be a battle of, you know, Android and iOS, um, going forward. And, you know, frankly, you know, as a business owner and, and kind of, you know, CEO guiding the company, you have to look at where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Um, you know, being on the back of the 800 pound gorilla is really where you want to be rather than underfoot because um, you get squished pretty quickly. As long as you're not, you know, developing Sapphire. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> that, that could be the show title. Chris Allen puts on his big boy pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the um yeah so i mean you know when i look at it those are the things that i look for and, and even when we do strategic partnerships um with different companies you know a lot of companies come to us as startups and not that i have anything against a startup i said you know i was a startup myself i still consider us a quasi startup but we look at where we can actually monetize our talent the quickest um and get the most value for the co- uh, for the company and for our investors um in the long run. So this seems to be, this industry seems to be moving first to the home market and then potentially to the business market. So business, um, is so that, you know, in the commercial space, yes, I think it's a little bit slower in the industrial space. Uh, GE has invested, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in this technology already. So a num- I was just at a IOT conference where I was sat on a panel with, um, a number of other uh, CEOs and uh, GE hosted it and they went through and did a kind of a side-by-side comparison of where they were and where they are now in terms of utilization of IoT and you know they gave an example of a train you know train has pretty much remained the same you know different little designs here and there but it's remained Mm -hmm. the same for the last 50 years what they've done now is they've actually put sensors all around these things Um, they can now tell based on um vibration sensing that they're doing every uh millisecond uh on the on the actual uh tracks to know where there's a break in the track so that they mm. can send out people to repair it that's being sent up to satellites for uh you know collection and the the amount of information they said they're harvesting now versus even 10 years ago is astronomically more um and it's all that big data you know that that, that everybody sure. talks about they seem to have had the best handle on what to do with the big data what do you see as sort of coming down in the future in the next two, five, ten years? Uh, so for iDevices and where I'm steering the company, and my belief is that we're really going to need to push the envelope for AI and the evolution of AI and where we're going is is the next frontier. Um, technology for technology's sake is going to become cliche, kind of old. IoT is already kind of getting worn out. Um and in order to truly, I think a product needs to truly provide value to the consumer. So as cheesy as iGrow may sound to some folks, it provides value when you're in a party situation and your grill is outside. You don't have to stand next to the grill. You're able to go spend time with your family, sit down, stay warm, whatever it may be. It also provides a health benefit so that you don't, you know, undercook the meat and get everybody sick as well which is a big concern for greater than 60 percent of the people that do grilling or or even cook in general especially pork and chicken Um, so when you look at a product of the future i think the product has to provide that 
value to the consumer to really get them to adopt it. Um, and I'll just give you an example. Rather than having to take your phone out of the pocket and turn something on and off, what if the device just, it, your, your phone becomes more of an indication of presence rather than a remote control? So the device sees that you're in the room based on the proximity of your phone to that device, knows that you like this light, that light, and this switch on, and the TV on this channel, and automatically does it. Um, that evolution and that kind of learning functionality built into the machine and to the device, whether it's a, an Android or an iOS, uh, is really going to provide value to the consumer. Um, if the you know, just to give you another example, is uh, if your phone saw that you have dinner with friends at the house tonight and your refrigerator had a pork tenderloin in there and you're heading home and it automatically started to preheat your oven to 350, had that up and running when you walked in the door so that by the time you got there, you just had to throw it in and you were ready to go. Those are things of value. Well, tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial story. You said you were working uh, in the uh, investment world, had this idea, had the entrepreneurial inspiration, and uh, and went ahead and, and fell upon a, a good email address. What has it been like to start that company, getting angel investors? What's the what's the art of the start for you? It's a lot of hard work. I mean, there's no, no getting around that. Um, but at the end of the day, this has been the best career I've ever had I wouldn't change a thing um, and from the ground up uh, you know it took a lot of no's to get a yes uh, you have to accept rejection um, and you know finding capital in the beginning the state has a decent amount here it's definitely not Silicon Valley mm. uh, by any stretch of the imagination but um, and Kickstarter and Indiegogo weren't in existence when I started so that probably would have been an easy launch pad for me today um, but we grounded out, we bootstrapped it. We've only raised, uh, I say only, but in the scheme of things, uh, we've raised about 10 million to date. We're raising another 10 million now. Uh, so 20 million through investors, through investors. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the total investment, uh, total rounds that we've done will aggregate and aggregate be about $20 million. So we're, rel we're really small in the scheme of things, but we've got a good backing here and we've got the state, uh, you know, I think that was one of the things that I would look for again. Uh, we were turned on to some of the state funds that can uh, invest in companies providing jobs here in the state of Connecticut. And uh, that lent itself to a lot of good connections through them because they did come in. Uh, Connecticut Innovations came in and backed us. And that led to other investors following on. Um, friends and family was the first go. Yeah. You know, that seems to always be the, the easy, low-hanging The warm fruit. market, sure. Yeah. Uh, it's tough sometimes, uh, knock on wood, mine's gone well since we've been pretty successful. Um, but that, that's something you want to be cognizant of as well. And then hiring the right people. I mean, through this entire process, uh, I went, um, coming back from California, I sat next to the C former CEO of Kmart. Uh, he was the longest tenured CEO there, uh, through the eighties and early nineties and, uh, long since retired, but he didn't disclose who he was until about halfway through the flight. And I said, well, you know, as a young CEO, this was in 2011, uh, what, what if any recommendations could you make to me that you see, you know, having hindsight of 2020? And he says, I'll be very honest. The best thing that you can do is to hire really great people around you and everything else will fall into place. Mm. He says, you know, make that investment in your people and you'll be fine. 
and it's held very, very true. I mean, I, I hired from the top down rather than from the bottom up. A lot of people like to hire kind of the grunt workers and the lower level young folks to get out of the gate. And I went with some more seasoned individuals, paid a little bit more, maybe used a little more capital, but uh, was able to build really good teams. And I trust those people implicitly. So when I hire somebody, um, I give them complete autonomy to do what they see fit in their department. I give out equity in the company to all the employees. So uh, obviously, you know, different levels of equity. But uh, to those team leads, you know, they have a vested interest in making the company a success. They also have to be, we call them team leads. So we have each individual department as a team. You know, they're, they're incentivized to go out and do their absolute best. And they have to be doers. They can't be just uh, kind of sitting in the cushy chair telling people what to do, folks. They have to be willing to get their hands dirty and do whatever it takes. And I have to say that my team, um, I know Apple says it all the time, that they're the best in the country that they've seen. So that's a big feather in our cap. Um, and I honestly believe it every day. I mean, these guys will work nights, weekends, whatever it takes to make sure mm. the job gets done. And the stuff they come up with is amazing. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a programmer. Didn't even finish college. You know, <laughs> so for me to give them any type of advice on how to write code, not not really going to happen. Right. Um, but at the same time, me not being an engineer and not being in, in the thick of it and software programming and everything else, I also am the, uh, the driving force that says that we have to kind of call it a day and move on, right? You have to make a product at the end of the day. And sometimes, no offense to engineers, but sometimes they like to continuously engineer. Sure. And you have to have that line in the sand that says, okay, it's done. There can be a V2. Yeah, there can be exactly. a software upgrade. There can sure. be a lot of things that happen. But we have to sell something in order to pay your salaries. So let's bring this to market, and then we'll allow you to enhance it in the future. We've been talking to Chris Allen, the CEO and founder of iDevices, a new product coming out in maybe just a few weeks. Go over, what is that, iDevices.net? iDevicesInc.com. iDevicesInc.com. So check that. I can't wait for it. But in the meantime, go pick yourself up an iGrill. It's cold outside. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. And, Appreciate uh, it. Good Great luck being to you in here. the future. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.